If you follow any major publication, education-specific or mainstream, New York Times, Washington Post, Inside Higher Ed, The Chronicle of Higher Education, you've likely heard the same line repeated. The humanities are in crisis. Very briefly, as we'll go more in depth in the episode, the humanities are those subjects that deal most broadly with a facet of human culture. Classics, history, literature, history of art, philosophy, theater, or other performing arts. What then does it mean for these disciplines to be in crisis? In our enrollment numbers, even the marker of a quote-unquote crisis. Maybe. But maybe that's the wrong question. Why are enrollment numbers down? I don't think you'll arrive at a simple answer to that question, but... We can look to overall enrollments in colleges and see which majors and which disciplines are getting attention. Perhaps there are vocational concerns. Why would I go for French literature when that electrical engineering or computer science degree, at least in a career standpoint, look so tempting? My guest this week, Dr. Eric Adler, finds that an argument for the humanities must come from the humanistic tradition must contain some essence of what makes the study of, say, classics unique. He argues that the defense of the humanities should come from within the humanities, not be outsourced to the social sciences. This is my conversation with Dr. Eric Adler. I'm Thomas Thompson, and you're listening to The Decay of Discourse. Today, I am joined by Dr. Eric Adler. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. You are a professor of classics at the University of Maryland, correct? That's right. So before we dive in any further, I was telling some friends, I said, I'm having a professor of classics on. And they said, what the hell are classics? And I said, what what do you mean, what are classics? And then I went to define classics. And I was like, I guess maybe, I don't know. Yeah, this is one of the serious problems uh, with uh, trying to keep the classical tradition alive and trying to keep the classics alive is that in many cases, people just don't know what you're talking about. And in fact, I've been told before that I must love Mark Twain. I've been uh, asked whether I play piano. You know, there's a lot of uh, resonances. Anything of that's old, of particular quality, is sometimes seen as a classic, you know, classic rock, classic cars, and so forth. Uh, but the study of uh, classics is associated with ancient Greece and Rome, and so the study of class, so-called classical antiquity. Um, and it is uh, oftentimes refracted through studying Latin and Greek literature, but there are other ways to do it with archaeology, history, and so forth added in. And so it typically starts with uh, the Bronze Age of Greece and goes all the way up to late antiquity. And so the exact parameters of it sort of depend on your individual practitioner. Um, but again, there are sort of philologists or language people, they're historians, and then there are also archaeologists who focus on Greece and Rome. That's that's helpful. I. I didn't even have this question written down. And as I was talking to people about doing this, I'm like, you know, I should probably ask that question, you know, because I had, I said, he studies classics and someone said, what, like Chaucer. And I went, I don't think that's a classic. I mean, it's a classic work of literature. Yes. But I don't think it's in the discipline of the classics. That's right. Yeah. 
So your newest book, The Battle of the Classics, How a 19th Century Debate Can Save the Humanities Today, was released on September 18th, 2020. And you open this book by recounting a debate that was had by your colleagues over the utility of foreign language studies as required coursework. Now, this is an anecdote that I thought stood out because it kind of encapsulates a good deal of what you're arguing in this book. And moreover, it's a debate that seems presently roaring through education circles. It's something I hear a lot in the circles I'm in. It's just, what is the purpose of a general study in, say, the humanities or foreign language, to use your example? And they take this argument a step further. You know, you'll see articles extolling the values of critical thinking when you study foreign language or the classics or and you see research on cognitive benefits of studying such and such subjects or such and such books. And are these arguments for the humanities that ground themselves in critical thinking and cognitive enhancement and whatever it may be, are they missing the point? Yes. That's, first of all, that's a great question because it seems to me that it gets really to the heart of my book and to the heart of the kind of enterprise that I'm interested in. First, I should say that all those people attempting to defend the humanities today should be applauded. Um, even if I disagree with what their arguments are, um, mm -hmm. I think that their goals are the same as my goals. They want the humanities to thrive. They're concerned about what the loss of the humanities in higher education can actually mean for our country and can mean for uh, students and can mean for Americans more generally. So um, even though I find some of these arguments unpersuasive, I think that these people have their hearts in the right place and they're trying to do really what I'm doing. However, I think that there are major problems with a kind of skills-based justification for the humanities as opposed to one based on content and one based on humanism. One of the things that's rather surprising, but in some ways not if you read my book um, all the way through, is that you discover that a lot of humanities professors know nothing about humanism or the humanistic tradition. And you might think that if you're a humanities professor, that would be the first thing you would know about, is that you would know what humanism is. But our higher education has become, starting in the late 19th century in the United States, so professionalized that scholars have been cut off from the humanistic tradition. And in some ways, as I attempt to argue in the book, scholars, even so-called humanists, no longer believe in humanism. And so as a result, they come up with these other kinds of arguments to justify uh, the humanities. And unfortunately, I find those arguments to be anti-humanistic, opposed to the spirit of the humanities and what the humanities are supposed to do. And in many cases, unfortunately, outsourcing, if, if not in all cases, outsourcing claims about the value of the humanities to people who are outside of the humanities. Your example from uh, the beginning of my book is a perfect case in point. At that point, I was teaching at a small liberal arts college and they were trying to revamp the curriculum. And so on the faculty listserv, there was a discussion of what would be the best general education system now that we're going to move on from the one we currently have. And a longstanding economics professor there made the argument that students shouldn't be forced to study a foreign language anymore. And his argument was, although it's a little silly if you uh, say it out loud, his argument was, uh, at Best Buy, I saw a, a translating device that will allow people to say something in English and it will automatically translate that phrase into a foreign language. And therefore there's no need for people to study language, foreign language anymore. 
And so, of course, as you might imagine, the foreign language faculty were really irked by this. Mm -hmm. And so someone from the French department responded. But his response was really interesting and I think in many ways very depressing. And one of the reasons I wrote this book to begin with, he said that you need to study foreign languages because it offers cognitive benefits. Uh, to all students, and therefore it needs to be offered. And he uh, attached an article from the New York Times that vouched for the cognitive benefits of foreign language study. Well, the economics professor totally pounced on this argument because it turned out that the claims made in the New York Times were not about students in college gaining cognitively from studying foreign languages, but those who were in fact bilingual since they were born. And so naturally, the economist said, well, can you give me a study that shows that people who uh, uh, study foreign languages uh, in college, not as bilinguals from birth, uh, gain cognitively? And the French department professor could not do so. And so I saw this as emblematic of humanists' inability to argue on their own terms for the value of foreign language study and for the value of the humanities. Instead, you have a French professor attempting to offer social science justifications for foreign language study, and he doesn't understand social science at all. So, of course, when he's debating an economist who understands these things, he's setting himself up for failure. So it was in part as a result of these well-intentioned, but I think really misguided attempts to defend the humanities that I attempted to offer in my book a historically um, rigorous, uh, but also novel approach to the humanities that grounds it in humanism rather than in social science research. It's, it's funny because the more you describe that situation, the more ridiculous it seems. You know, you, one would think that experts in a field would want to stay arguing in their field, not branch out into different fields where they may not have much expertise. You were talking about how many professors of the human teaching in the humanities or people teaching in the humanities in general, um, you know, know nothing about humanism. No, So I think it would probably be helpful for the audience if we take the time and put the groundwork there and define humanism. Yeah, uh, so th there's a long there's a long answer to that. I'll try to be as short yeah. as I can under the circumstances. I, I, I realize that asking that could take you know five podcasts. <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, there's a there's there's a limit to it. But humanism is uh, in many ways a tradition that goes back a pedagogical tradition that goes back to Roman antiquity. Um, it was deeply influenced by the by Greek visions of education beforehand, but it was really the Romans who come up in the in the late Roman Republic, the first century BC, with this idea of what Cicero calls the Roman um, author and statesman and even sometimes poet and lawyer. Cicero calls the studia humanitatis, the studies of humanity, and he argued in some of his works that. A, a lifelong course of education was needed to be undertaken by members of the Roman elite um, in order for them to be able to live up to the spirit of what he called humanitas. And by humanitas, he meant something like um, benevolence, kindness, even mercy. And so there was an idea that Cicero believed that the studies of humanity or the studies of civilization would lead to these beneficial qualities, moral qualities in those who had thus studied. Um, his vision of 
uh, education uh, and of humanism was actually all-encompassing. It was not just what we think of in, in regard to the humanities today. He also lumped the sciences, uh, mathematics, and so forth in his vision of humanism. Um, that, however, changes during the course of the Renaissance. In the Renaissance, a number of uh, Italian thinkers originally um, pick up Cicero's idea of the studia humanitatis, but they narrow it. Even though they see themselves as inspired by Cicero, they narrow that tradition to focus on, more explicitly, the masterworks of Greek and Latin literature. And so the idea was that one should study these works during the course of one's education in order to become a better person. The idea being that Greek and Latin literature from uh, Greco-Roman antiquity could help people live up to their higher potentialities, could perfect someone's character and style, and that this was the proper goal of the humanities themselves, right? So it's again a moral issue, but in the case of the Renaissance humanists, it was cutting that tradition um, off from the sciences and so forth. That the argument was that only literature, and specifically only classical literature, could actually have these particular benefits. That is the major influence on the American colleges from their foundation in the 17th century all the way up until the mid 19th century. So that the humanities in early America are what we would now call a classical education, reading Greek and Latin authors from antiquity in the original in order to perfect one's character. This is the idea. As you get into the 19th century, and I'm sure we'll get into these arguments later, the attacks on this particular model of education became uh, particularly fierce. And as a result, during the course of the 19th century, the model of the humanities changed from a Renaissance model of humanism, which was associated with the classical humanities alone, to what we would now call the modern humanities, where what had previously been given um, the, the emphasis, and the only emphasis in the humanities was Greek and Latin literature, now a variety of disciplines, English literature, German literature, philosophy, music, these sorts of things are all religion, these are all parts of the modern humanities. So the tradition is variegated and complex, but in its essence, from antiquity, and especially in the Renaissance forward, is the notion that the study of particular works will lead to moral betterment. That people can, again, live up to their higher potentialities. They can improve themselves by studying works of literature. So humanism has, we're gonna to get to this in a little bit, has changed through time then, the way we define it. And your profession, the being a professor of classics, studying classics is more closely akin to the Renaissance mode of humanism, which is the study of Greek and Roman literature, or is it, well, has it yes. changed as well? Yes and no. I mean, classics is a kind of area study. So in some ways, it sort of depends because there are, as I suggested beforehand, there are historians, some of whom are text-based mm -hmm. and focus on Thucydides, say, or Livy or something like that. Um, but then there are also historians who focus on social history, history of sexuality, you know, all these other kinds of things. And they may not be especially text-based. And as a result, they wouldn't, they would be social scientists rather than humanists. Yeah. Similarly, there are archaeologists in classics, and such folks would also be social scientists too. 
too. So classics is a kind of, and, and this is another reason why it's hard to defend with a kind of silver bullet defense, is that there is a kind of variety of different practitioners who use different methodologies, and only part of the field is actually humanistic or should be humanistic, properly speaking. Where does an honest argument for the humanities begin, right? We were talking a little earlier about trying to ground it in critical thinking or cognitive science or whatever it may be. Does it begin with looking at our aims for why we're arguing for the humanities? What's the goal? Or is it, does it go back to, you know, defining, knowing what humanism is and then arguing from there? What, where's, where, where does it begin? I think it, it really begins, first of all, that's a great question because it really gets at the essence of what we're talking about. Um, I think that it, it, it should be grounded in the history of humanism, that we should understand that history because we should understand that the humanities, even though there have been core changes to the tradition over time, that the humanities has have traditionally had certain goals all the way from Roman antiquity and in, in some ways all the way since Greek antiquity up to the present. And so the most obvious way of defending the humanities, I think, and the way that I favor is through humanism. The idea that actually studying particular works of religion, particular works of literature, um, particular works of art can actually allow people to live up to their higher potentialities, can improve the self. Now, I'm not so naive as to believe it will make everybody perfect and all you mm -hmm. need to do is show up into my class and read some Livy and then you're out ready to be a perfect person. But what marks the humanities off from other elements of the university is, I think, that the humanities are focused on humanism. They are internally focused, right? Whereas the other aspects of the university are more, more focused on what Irving Babbitt, who we'll talk about later, I think, mm -hmm. uh, called humanitarianism. That is to say, the drive to improve the material conditions of the world. So they're outwardly focused, and they're focused on a kind of human progress, by and large. But what's, uh, what's special about the humanities is what they do for the potential internal workings of a person and the ability for an a person to engage in character development. Because this is another essence of the argument, which is if you're going to argue that the humanities need to be retained on a college campus, it seems essential to argue that the humanities do something that other fields don't. Because if not, then there's no reason to keep them. And this is one of, just one, but one of the major problems with uh, critical thinking. What, one problem is what does that mean exactly? And uh, uh, that's one major problem. But the second issue is that Everyone who teaches at a university thinks that they offer critical thinking to their students. Yeah. So if you try to argue that the humanities need to be retained on campus because they offer critical thinking skills, well, the guy in the biology department thinks he offers critical thinking skills, and the woman in economics thinks she offers critical thinking skills, and the guy in the business department thinks he offers critical thinking skills. So there's absolutely nothing lost if you get rid of the humanities. But if you focus on humanism, the drive to perfect the self, well, you actually have an argument for something that other fields do not do and cannot do as well either, I think it's safe to say. And so that's what's so important to keeping the tradition alive. This is, um, this is an argument I like, right? I had, um, it's funny that you talked about defining critical thinking. I had someone on the podcast and we spent an hour and a half trying to define critical thinking and that went in circles. And then I had um, some uh, Dr. Melinda Zook from Purdue University. They're 
doing this new program called Transformative Texts. Yep, and yeah. the main argument for it was not critical thinking skills. It was, you know, these texts can lead to a transformative experience that develops your character, makes you a more, makes you a better human being. One, you know, mm -hmm. thinks along more moral terms that, and it seems to be more in line with your argument. I mean, there's still the obligatory blip about critical thinking skills and cognitive benefits right. and so on and so forth. But mm -hmm. you touch on this idea in the book and I, and I want to clarify a few issues from it. You know, we constantly hear that, especially if you're reading, you know, Inside Higher Ed or the Chronicle of Higher Education or whatever it might be, you know, the humanities are in crisis. It's this never-ending state of crisis. What role do you think a media narrative reporting on a never-ending state of crisis for the humanities actually does to the debate about the humanities or the fate of the humanities? I mean, is it that this type of reporting helps set the stage for a self-fulfilling prophecy of sorts you know administrators continually hear that there's a crisis in the humanities so they act as though there is a crisis which furthers the narrative of there being a crisis and this continues ad nauseum yeah i mean you're right it seems to me it doesn't help right it doesn't help to be constantly seeing and it's not just in inside higher ed or the chronicle of higher education it's sort of everywhere you know yeah. the new york times and the washington post all these discussions about can the humanities survive you know why are they valuable and so forth and yes i do think that it gives administrators a sense that you know the humanities are on their last legs so uh, they're being cut everywhere so i agree that that does not help um, although you know uh, in some ways these these papers are just reporting in, uh, on what's actually happening on the ground. And a number of departments are shutting down. Mm -hmm. So it seems to me that that's newsworthy. Seems to me, though, that what's more important and something that humanists need to recognize, and I think parents and students need to recognize moving forward, is that the curriculum that we have in higher education at the vast majority of schools is itself created in the late 19th centuries deliberately to minimize the influence of humanism on American higher education. The kind of choose your own adventure curriculum that allows students to pick whatever they want by and large. You know, they have to take a class in the humanities, but they can take any one they want. Um, they have to take a social science class, but they can take virtually any one they want, was deliberately crafted in order to minimize the influence of the humanities on American higher education. To us, that may sound strange because this curriculum has existed for so long and has been dominant for so long in American higher education that it may just seem natural that of course people can choose whatever classes they want to take and they choose a major and so forth. But if you actually look back at earlier uh, American uh, history in a higher education, you'll see that the college was set up very differently. The American college was set up with largely a prescribed curriculum in which students were forced to read specific texts, um, oftentimes in Latin and Greek, because it was believed that those texts provided the most profound vision of the human condition and were therefore the best conduits for humanism. Um, and so it is impossible, it seems to me, to have a, a revival of humanism with a curriculum that was specifically crafted in the late 19th century in order to minimize the humanities and their role on the American college campus. But unfortunately, that's where most college professors find themselves. The choose your own adventure curriculum, which was established by scientists, both natural and social, in essence, to minimize the humanities by coming up with a curriculum that was uh, based on laissez-faire economics, 
and social Darwinism. The idea being that if students don't run to your discipline in sufficient numbers, that your discipline should be cut. And that's the kind of debate we're having now. When they say we're gonna close a classics department or we're gonna close a French department, gee, there are only five people who are majoring in French, so let's get rid of this department and so forth. It doesn't occur to anybody that the popularity of a subject is not the same as its importance mm -hmm. for the education of a person. And yet we seem to believe this kind of Darwinian notion that let them take whatever they want and whatever the customer is always right and whatever they don't choose should be eliminated. That is a deeply pernicious vision of higher education, um, which is essentially contentless, which makes the humanities uh, really suffer, I think. And so yeah. that I think is much more important than the kind of doom and gloom, which I admit is also not helpful. Well, many of, well, it's interesting that your argument from what we were just talking about, you keep referring back, you know, to arguments had in the 19th century, the late 19th century or before that. And many of these issues and concerns about the utility of the humanities persists regardless of any defenses we hear about them. And one area you explore is the relative short-sightedness of defenders of the humanities. This is something you talk about in the book. What exactly do you mean by this? Are they just not following the argument through time? You know, they're just drawing on examples from the last 20, 30 years, and you're like, hey, you're missing a lot. Yeah, I mean, I, that's a great question. I, I do think, first of all, it should be mentioned that when you're trying to defend the humanities, you are trying to defend a tradition to various constituents. And so I can understand in some respects that people would offer utilitarian defenses because colleges become more expensive and parents are worried that having forked over a fair amount of money that their child isn't going to be able to find a job. So in some senses, focusing on job skills that you can get them if you major in English or major in classics is understandable. The problem, it seems to me, is if, if those are our only arguments, or those are our chief arguments, then it seems to me that they undercut the value of what the humanities do. Because, well, one reason is those arguments about critical thinking, cognitive ability, and so forth, they can be offered by virtually any other field in America as well, in American higher education as well. So there is, again, nothing special about this. But second, I think that it gives people the impression that majoring in engineering is the same thing as majoring in art history. Both of them allow you to think critically. Well, if that's the case, why major in art history? Um, why not major in engineering? You have a better shot at getting a higher paid job, maybe. Um, so again, we have to give a sense that the humanities actually do something. And they do something that the rest of the curriculum does not do. And the answer to that is humanism. And that's another reason why we shouldn't be so concerned about what people major in. I don't really care. If you want to major in engineering, knock yourself out. I do think, however, it's deeply important for everyone who goes through higher education to have some sense of character development to have some sense of trying to live up to their better selves. And we can only do this really through humanism and through the humanities. And that's why it's essential that they remain a part of American higher education, not critical thinking or what have you. We keep talking about missing the point. You know, you keep arguing for critical thinking. Any subject at any area of study can argue that we 
inspire critical thinking. We encourage critical thinking. And, and generally, it's, it's defined, at least by Dewey, as an active, persistent, careful consideration of a belief or supposed form of knowledge. You know, it's yielding to evidence and reason as an authority. It's considering sourcing. It's, it's a wide variety of skills that generally just come across through one's education. It's like, okay, sure, maybe perhaps there is this thought is encouraged, but you are missing something that makes our field original. There's something that makes our field important in itself. Yes, I, I agree with that. And I, I would also add that who's going to test whether critical thinking has been actually delivered to students? Mm -hmm. And the answer to that is social scientists. Yeah. Social scientists can test empirically whether uh, whatever they call critical thinking, however they define it, which courses actually offer critical thinking the most. And so the danger for humanities professors is kind of like what I talked about at the beginning when you brought up the subject of this economics professor who didn't want foreign language study. Um, you're asking humanities professors to justify the value of what they're teaching on the basis of what social scientists say is the value of what you're teaching. And the problem with that, of course, is one social scientist say, gee, I'm sorry, being an English major really does not encourage critical thinking. Well, good luck fighting against that person. You already yes. agreed to fight on their turf. So, and secondly, how weak is a discipline if it can't come up with its own justification of its existence? Yeah. That it actually needs to look to the social sciences and say, they'll tell you why we're good or what have you. That's a disaster. So yeah. you're basically reinforcing the superiority of the social sciences and the scientific method and undercutting the power of humanism by granting the social sciences the role of judge. Um, and as you might imagine, especially in the kind of curriculum where everyone has to compete. I mean, we have a kind of Darwinian curriculum and those who don't get enough students and don't get enough majors, they can be cut. Um, outsourcing claims about the value of what you study is a disaster. So you want to tell the economics department and the political science department, you justify the value of the humanities. Well, they're not in a position to do a very good job for you because they're worried about themselves, understandably, because they, we're not in a, we should all get along kumbaya curriculum. We're all fighting for the same resources. Mm -hmm. So again, failing to come up with a humanities justification, a humanism justification for the humanities ends up being a complete disaster. I think, pragmatically speaking. Well, let me give you an argument then from the critical thinker types. Is it that a great books curriculum or a studying a canon of classics, is it, is it then that that is too intellectually narrow for the needs of today's students? You know, why are we doing this when they would be better served with computer science or whatever? Not saying I buy this argument, but it is right. an argument that I have heard. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I think that that, my answer to that is that's partly true and partly false. Um, so it's partly true insofar as one thing I try to get across in the book is that a great books curriculum, traditionally speaking in the United States, which came up in the early 20th century as a way to fight against the kind of curricular anarchy that was established when you had the choose your own adventure curriculum beginning in the late 19th century, um, was only focused on Western works. So it was less narrow than the Renaissance humanism. You know, you should only focus on Greek and Latin works from classical antiquity, but it wasn't sufficiently broad for today. Um, by only focusing on so-called Western civilization or works from Western civilization, you're ignoring large parts of what the modern humanities are about. 
So when people make this claim that the great books are too narrow, in some ways I think they're right, and in some very important ways, which is one reason why I try to argue in my book um, for an omnicultural uh, core curriculum focused on masterworks from a variety of cultures. And I try to offer a justification based on Irving Babbitt's work that um, tries to show why that's the best way forward. However, as far as this being too narrow, you have to think a little bit about in comparison with what? So if we just have uh, the kind of curriculum that exists for most of American higher education now, how broad does a humanities curriculum have to be for such students? They can choose virtually all of their own courses. So what are they gonna choose? Well, there are, there are courses available on comic books and there are courses available on pornography and so forth. And they can take, those could be their humanities classes. Is that really a broader approach, a more valuable approach to the humanities than the great books? I doubt it. So the great books need to be revised. They need to be augmented. They need to be made omnicultural. Um, but education has to have a content, and it might as well be content that we think is particularly useful for humanism, as opposed to a choose-your-own-adventure curriculum, which is, might be useful for individual faculty members' research, but isn't actually helpful for the students themselves. In, in considering a lot of the, the structural values of higher education and of, of public education, you know, you, you talked about how it's really focused on you know, empirical research and writing these technical papers and whatnot. And is it just that largely we don't care about cultivating the virtues of benevolence and kindness? Just there's more important things to do. I have to get ready to make money. Why am I going to waste? I could do this later after I retire. You know, what is the immediate necessity of this? Why is it so important for a college student? Right. I think you're right, and you've hit on something that's actually very important. I do believe that in many cases, although I don't think people would necessarily say this out loud, or they're yeah. not even that um, aware that they believe this, people don't actually believe in humanism. They don't believe that it's possible to read great works and possibly to develop your character in order to live up to your higher potentialities. Um, Babbitt talked about ways in which, and we'll talk about him, I guess, later, but Irving Babbitt, who's a, a thinker, is very important toward the end of my book, talked about the ways in which uh, the Romantic movement, more specifically, um, argued against and fought against this humanist conception. To Babbitt, there was a kind of uh, dualism to human nature and that all humanists, whether they were part of the historical humanistic tradition or not, implicitly or explicitly believed in this dual nature of the human being. That human beings have both higher potentialities and they also have lower potentialities. And it's important to get a humanist education in character development so that they can live up to their better selves uh, and uh, tamp down their base selves as much as possible. He argued that one of the ways in which this conception of humanity fell apart, or it doesn't fall apart exactly, but became less influential, was the Romantic movement. And he pointed to Rousseau, who's the most powerful thinker associated with the Romantic movement, who argued, according to Babbitt, who was simplifying to some degree, but argued, to, to, according to Babbitt, that human beings are by nature good. And it's society and its institutions that have corrupted 
human beings. And as a result, there is no kind of tension between higher and lower potentialities. People should just embrace their own natural goodness and embrace all of their impulses. So if you believe that, then there is no need to cultivate your higher potentialities because you naturally cultivate, you only have higher potentialities. And so that ends up reinforcing the scientific, both natural and social scientific way of viewing the world, which is the real tension in society is not in the, the struggle in the, uh, between higher and lower potentialities in the individual, but rather the struggle between human being and society on the other hand. So what you need to do is to come up with ways to improve society. And as long as you get that right, everything will be better because human beings are by nature good. And even though I think if you say it this starkly, most people would say, gee, I, I don't really believe that. But our higher education in many ways does believe that. And that's why it offers a kind of choose your own adventure curriculum. The idea being that human beings are by nature good. They need no guidance from anybody else as far as what they should study. Whatever they just naturally are drawn to, this is going to be good, right? So again, this is a curriculum that is anti-humanistic. Um, and that is, again, another serious problem for the humanities thriving in American higher education. So this idea between, you know, this struggle between human and society it reminds me of probably Rousseau's most oft-quoted phrase, which is the, you know, man is born free, but everywhere is in chains. Is that essentially what he's getting at with that, you know, this idea that we are fighting against uh, the coercive structures of society? Right. Yes, that's, that's right. And of course, he's partly right. I mean, yeah. that, that, that's partly true. But behind that is, I think, a highly unrealistic vision of human nature, which is that human beings are by nature good. Um, mm. I wish that were true, um, <laughs> although it would put me out of a job, but I don't think it would really matter that much. But unfortunately, it isn't true. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that if you look at many of the great traditions, um, which Babbitt tried to look at. If you look at Hinduism, if you look at Buddhism, if you look at Confucius, if you look at Jesus, if you look at Aristotle, they don't believe this. They recognize, if you look at the founders of the United States, they recognize by and large that human beings have both higher and lower potentialities. And this is one of the great dangers for society, it seems to me. If we have a curriculum, as we have throughout most of American colleges and universities, that does not focus on character development at all, and that sees even the humanities as merely conduits for critical thinking skills, why do we think the vocational training that they're going to receive is naturally going to be used in beneficent service to society? If human beings have both higher and lower potentialities, why do we think that their vocational training is going to be used in the service of their higher potentialities mm -hmm. rather than their lower potentialities? So by divorcing education from character development entirely, which is in, in essence what we're doing with the kind of curriculum we have and what mm -hmm. humanists are arguing for by suggesting that all we offer are critical thinking skills, then ultimately what we're doing is putting society in the hands of people who don't even recognize that they are capable of great evil, that they're capable of great selfishness. Mm -hmm. This is a disaster for society moving forward. And it's why it seems to me, it's not so important that there are humanities majors, but it's important that there's humanity ex exposure for all students because people have to realize that character development is important. I understand getting a job is important too. I'm not mm -hmm. arguing that that's not important, but our society cannot believe that people will naturally do good if they're given only vocational training. So 
studying the humanities really seems to be a repudiation of this idea that people are born good, right? We have to cultivate the, the higher potentialities of human beings. And you're right, it does seem like the education system is not primarily concerned with this anymore. I mean, I, um, I was actually looked at sideways when um, someone was asking me about what my definition of education was. And I used the William James line, which is that the cultivation of tendencies to behavior and um, in habits, right? And you want to cultivate tendencies to behavior and the habits of someone who really embodies these, uh, these higher potentialities. I have my next question was about uh, Irving Babbitt, but we kind of covered a lot of it, but I want to dive in a little bit deeper. So you spend quite a bit of time in the book discussing literary and social critic Irving Babbitt, who is often associated with this, this new humanism movement. Um, before we go any further, is, is there a, a good definition of new humanism or is it kind of a nebulous term? How would you go about that? Yeah, so, so uh, new, new humanism was an informal movement of social and literary criticism in the late 19th and into the early 20th century. And it was an attempt chiefly on the part of Irving Babbitt, who was the chief thinker associated with it. Babbitt was himself a professor of French and comparative literature at Harvard. Another major name associated with the new humanism is a guy named Paul Elmer Moore, who was a journalist, but then ultimately taught classics at Princeton um, as well during the course of his career. But Babbitt's the chief thinker associated with this. And it was really an attempt to encapsulate humanist wisdom from the past as, an, as a means to save both the classics more specifically, but the humanities more generally. And so Babbitt was both, in some senses, looking back at what he saw as humanist wisdom and the humanistic tradition from the past. But he also, as I attempt to argue in the book, was a profoundly um, modern thinker, and in some ways a revolutionary thinker, because he greatly broadened the humanistic tradition to look beyond its both classical and Western origins, and tried to come up with a sort of omnicultural humanism, which even though, you know, his ideas come from the early 20th century, so they don't perfectly fit the contours mm -hmm. of what we need today, uh, are still, these ideas about education are still highly valuable, insofar in part that Babbitt was a highly um, syncretistic thinker. And so he was interested in what is similar about various traditions, East and West and what have you, but also what was different about them too. And so I think he came up implicitly with a kind of curriculum that actually suits uh, the contemporary humanities because he looked far beyond what was really popular in his day for defenders of the humanities, which was the Western tradition alone. He was interested in world tradition. He was kind of a Buddhist or close to being a Buddhist. And I think this is one reason why um, he was interested in these kinds of ideas. But um, although he had other elements to his thought, he was also interested in aesthetics. He was also interested in political theory. Uh, uh, he was also interested in a variety of things. At the same time, at the core of Babbitt, because he was a humanist, is this idea of the necessity of humanism in education for the continuation of civilization. Mm -hmm. And I think that although there are things about Babbitt's ideas I disagree with, and I think that there are things that many people can disagree with, with elements of Babbitt's ideas, um, he's an an unfortunately overlooked figure in the American humanistic tradition because his ideas are deeply important and really valuable for humanists as we try to come up with the best way of rescuing the humanities from the kind of situation they find themselves in today. 
a, f a few things with this. It's very interesting that you describe him as, you know, a revolutionary thinker, because as you, um, as is discussed in the book, he's often cast in the role of a reactionary or, you know, why do you think that is the case? And also, you know, the book's title is the battle of the class, the battle of the classics in a 19th century debate. Who was his opposite? Who was he arguing against? And what was really their position? I think you talked about this, choose your yeah. own adventure. And yeah. I think Charles W. Eliot is yeah. a part of yeah. this whole story here. I, I kind of feel, uh, I really like what Babbitt's saying, and I kind of feel bad because I was really getting into some Charles Eliot not too long ago with his writings <laughs> well, on education. Not, well, there's nothing, uh, you know, necessarily terrible. I mean, Eliot has his good sides too, it seems to me. Um, uh, although I, I do think he's been largely, uh, well, I shouldn't say this, in part, he's been a malign influence on American higher education. But I do think we have to recognize Eliot, who was himself president of Harvard University for mm -hmm. 40 years and really revolutionized Harvard. He turned it from what was, in essence, a small college and turned it into the research university that in many ways we still have with us today. And so he's um, maybe the most important figure in American higher education uh, that there has been still to this day. Um, but he was definitely the bet noir of uh, Irving Babbitt. Let me go I'll step back a little bit and talk a little bit about Babbitt and his political philosophy and how it's been seen. First off, I should say that when I discovered Babbitt, it was in regard to research for a previous book. And I didn't really know anything about this guy. And I frankly was only interested in his educational thought because that was the only thing that I had learned about him at all. And I read his first book, Literature in the American College from 1908. And I was astounded that the book, although dated, it's from over a hundred years ago, um, was one of the greatest critiques of the modern university that I've ever read before in my life. And so I recognized at that point, I think I want this guy to be a linchpin for my next book. I then started to dig more into Babbitt, and I have to confess that I was a little bit crestfallen when I discovered that he had been seen as this sort of conservative figure, in part because, although I'm not a very politically uh, interested person uh, myself, at least these days, um, I'm not a conservative. And so when I saw that Babbitt was seen as a kind of conservative, which I think is partly true and partly not true, he did not self-identify as a conservative. Uh, either, it should be noted. But when I saw that, I recognized, gosh, it's going to be a lot harder to convince my fellow academics that this guy is someone who's worthy of paying attention to because of the kind of left-wing tilt, uh, especially in humanities departments. And so I recognized that things were going to be more difficult for me. Babbitt was himself, I think, partly a kind of Burkean kind of conservative, I suppose. But that's also made more fraught because because first of all, Burke was himself a Whig, not a Tory. So whether Burke was really a conservative is sort of hard to say. And then second, um, Babbitt, again, did not self-identify as a conservative. He was actually rather critical of people he thought were conservative. And he was certainly critical of reactionaries. And this is one of the reasons why he had a falling out with T.S. Eliot, who had been one of his devoted students at Harvard and so forth, is that uh, Eliot became kind of a royalist and, you know, uh, focused in, to some degree on anti-Semitism, and Babbitt didn't like any of that stuff. So the reason why, or one reason why Babbitt is seen as a conservative thinker, I think, um, which is, I think, to completely miscast his educational views entirely, is that around 1930, the new humanism became really popular. And suddenly magazines and newspapers across the country became obsessed with Babbitt and his ideas and what they were and so forth. And so 
as is the case today when something like this happens, an army of journalists and literary critics suddenly dove into Babbitt's work, which is hard to understand. He was not a great writer. This is another issue uh, as well. Um, and they started to cast aspersions about him and they called him a fascist and they called him this reactionary and so forth. All of this was careless, I think, in regard to what his ideas were, specifically in regard to higher education. But the label stuck to some degree. And as a result, his influence has been largely on the political right. Um, uh, and so I think that also has an element uh, to it as well. But one thing that I will note is that during the course of the new humanist movement, a number of Babbitt's followers were actually on the political left. Um, Frank Jewett Mather, who was a professor of art history at Princeton, was a great friend of Babbitt's and Paul Elmer Moore's, one of the most important first generation humanists. He called himself in the pages of the New Republic, a humanist of the extreme left, right? And there were others as well. So there were people who believed that these ideas about the dualistic nature of the human being, the importance of the humanistic tradition and so forth, could also self-identify as socialists, anti-capitalists, leftists of a variety of, of strands as well. So I think that Partly, Babbitt was a kind of conservative, although again, I'll note, he was also deeply anti-imperialist, which is a tradition that's often associated, particularly starting in the 1970s, in the United States with the left rather than the right. Um, and uh, at the same time, he didn't self-identify as a conservative, but he is partly miscast in that label, I think by the culture warriors who were his critics during the time. There's a lot that I wanna unpack there. I'm trying to think the best way to do it. <laughs> The only people I really know who ever identify themselves as humanists, you know, one was public historian friend of mine who's a socialist, and Kurt Vonnegut. <laughs> this is the only two people I ever say to describe themselves as humanists. I often hear it phrased in religious connotations, which is, again, also interesting. I'm a secular humanist. I'm not a Christian. I'm not right, whatever right. it might be. And it's often cited as some sort of a religious theology or ideology. Um, but I, if anything I, I've learned from this, it's much broader than that. And uh, it's good to know I might not make the same mistakes of not knowing what humanism is next time I want to get into these conversations. Uh, you, you point to, if I can for a second, yeah, no uh, just interject. It seems to me that you, you, you hit on something really important, which is nowadays there has been such violence that has been done to the word humanism that it mm -hmm. means basically anything to anybody. Yeah. And so anything that has to do with the human at all that might be kind of rosy about the human is seen as humanist. So you get secular humanism and Christian humanism mm -hmm. and humanism, and you get all these very different projects, scientific humanism and so on, all these different projects that get associated with humanism. But again, it's really important to go back and look at the history and see what the humanistic movement actually is because in many cases, people who call themselves humanists are not really linked to that tradition. And it's, and I don't know if this is anything, you know, um, new or precisely only with the word humanism. Words seem to be butchered and murdered <laughs> frequently. You know, I hear people absolutely swear against postmodernism without knowing right. even what that may mean, or, you know, right. people who say communism or socialism when they're just mm -hmm. kind of throwing it as a blanket term over a lot of different ideas. And uh, yeah. it, it's definitely is a shame as it when the meaning between words and what they stand for and what they represent slip, it's, it gets in all kinds of strange and fuzzy territory. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. Yes, I completely agree. So I, I want to be respectful of your time. I've taken up a lot of this already. So I think we'll end with, with this. 
the listenership of this show could best be described broadly as a general audience, right? So you may gain a few converts with this one. Um, <laughs> what is the case right now, if you're talking to just the general audience that listen to the show, what is the case for reading classics? What is the case for studying what you do? Why should someone devote time of which they already have too little to reading Seneca or Heraclitus or Epicurus, whoever? Yeah, uh, um, thanks so much for the opportunity. Again, as I stressed beforehand, the classics uh, are today a kind of variegated field with different purposes. So the purpose of studying Roman archaeology, say, would be different from the, the studying of Thucydides as a writer or what have you. Yeah, I suppose I still am keeping a very narrow definition of the classics, because as you said, it is a broader area right. than most people give credit for. Right, yeah, and so I would add that. But as far as the humanistic side, I think that it's really important to recognize that some works written in classical antiquity are what I consider masterworks. And what I mean by that is that these are works that have, and it's not only from the classical tradition, this is where the Renaissance humanists were wrong. They thought that this only existed in this, mm -hmm. you know, these two societies that existed um, at this particular period of time. But I do think that certain classical works have fundamental insight into the human condition and that offer a vision of what it means to be a human being that is so profound that it is really necessary for people to experience these particular works. Now that does not mean that one has to just passively drink in their knowledge and just say, I'm gonna live exactly like Aristotle tells me to, or Virgil or what have you. Um, great works, uh, as particularly of literature, are not didactic in this very simple sense. So what's very important, it seems to me, for those who are reading great works, whether they're classical great works or they're not classical great works or what have you, is that they have to be reading them creatively to think about ways in which they can update these works to the circumstances of their own lives, which could mean the transcendence of these ideas, it could mean the rejection of these ideas, it could mean the embracing of these ideas, but with a certain sense of humility that some of these great works are great because, and they survive um, from classical antiquity or from antiquity more generally, because people throughout the ages have recognized that they say something profound about what it means to be a human being. And that such works actually can humanize us. It doesn't mean it's an all a purpose recipe to like flicking on a light switch and suddenly you're a good person because you've read Virgil. Unfortunately, things don't work that way. But if you are willing to read creatively and think creatively about updating these ideas from the past, you can live a life that is far more fulfilling and decent and moral than you would otherwise do. And that that's something that should be a part, I think, of people's formal education, mm -hmm. but it should be part of people's lives anyway, even if it isn't. Well, that's as good a place as any to call it. However, I, I think I want to ask one last thing quickly, and this may not be so quick. You know, often when people listen to podcasts, they always want, you know, the recommended reading list. And I'm not going to ask you to go through the full thing, but, you know, what is, what is a book that had that effect on you, that you read and they said, this is an impactful, great text that is like, change the way I think about something? Yeah, I, that's a great question. It seems to me, I mean, there's so many one could pick, I yeah. think. Um, but I do think that 
and this is an interesting work because it's a little less canonical than other things by him, but I'm a Roman historian in origin, someone who focuses in Roman historiography. And Tacitus as Agricola, which I'm actually teaching in a graduate seminar, among other works this semester, um, is a profoundly important book to me because it's, first of all, Tacitus, who was a Roman author during the first and into the second centuries AD, um, was a profoundly uh, pessimistic kind of person. And so his work is not that fun to read in a lot of mm -hmm. ways, although he was a great stylist. He's also a very difficult Latin author. But his works are all, and in the Agricola, I think in, in, in specifics too, meditations on the way in which society has a kind of influence on individuals. And specifically, he's focused on the political culture of the Roman Empire where he lives, which he thinks is terrible. The Roman Empire is an autocracy. It's run by an emperor. He's the senator. The senators are pushed around. They don't have the freedom that they used to when there was the Republic. And so his work, the Agricola, is a kind of meditation in which he doesn't really decide, I think. There's sort of a tension in the work about whether you can be a good person living under a bad form of government, whether you can have a good public career under a bad government, or whether you should just give up because the world is so awful living in a bad system. And I think in many ways, although he does not provide an easy answer from looking at his work, it's a profound reflection on the ways in which human beings bump up against the situations in which they find themselves. And I think it's applicable to everybody's life in, in an important way. And if it's read seriously and you reflect on it, I, it's hard for it not to have an impact on your life, I think. Well, thank you. I'm definitely going to check it out. I usually put the links for any works we mention in the show, in the show notes, and, and this one, you know, being written when it was is is free to access so right. I, there's <laughs> copies that we'll give to the audience you can go to our website decayofdiscourse.com it's under the show notes episode uh 58 oh i almost lost it there um thank again thank you again for coming on i really enjoyed this thank you so much for having me i appreciate it